Welcome to the July 7, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the risk of subsequent malignancies in patients treated with genetically modified immune effector cells. Discuss how P53 immunohistochemistry can be a global readout for TP53 alterations in AML, and uncover the role of CD19-negative, CD22-positive B-cell progenitors in immune escape from CD19-directed therapies. Our first blood article is entitled, Long-Term Follow-Up for the Development of Subsequent Malignancies in Patients Treated with Genetically Modified Immune Effector Cells by David Steffen from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and colleagues. Genetically Modified Immune Effector Cells, or IECs, such as CAR T-cells, are increasingly being used to treat patients with hematologic malignancies due to their strong anti-tumor activity and potential to induce long-term remission. They are also currently under investigation in patients with solid tumors. Other examples of IECs include activated T-cells or virus-specific T-lymphocytes. However, little is known about the long-term effects or genotoxic potential of these cells. Although genetically modified IECs are not believed to cause mutations in surrounding tissues, inserting transgenes into living cells may carry the risk of insertional mutagenesis via disruption of a tumor suppressor gene or unintentional activation of expression of a nearby oncogene. This has been a particular concern with use of gamma retroviruses for gene modification, since these integrate near-gene promoters and also harbor strong viral enhancers. In fact, hematologic malignancies were reported in patients who received hematopoietic stem cells transduced with gamma retroviruses for treatment of inherited blood diseases, such as X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency. Therefore, the development of post-treatment malignancies remains a concern in patients receiving genetically modified IECs, and regulatory authorities currently recommend a minimum of 15 years of follow-up for patients receiving any genetically modified cell therapy. In this article in Blood, the authors report on 30 years of experience treating patients with institutionally generated IECs, that were genetically modified using gamma retroviral vectors. The aim of the study was to determine the risk of developing a subsequent malignancy after treatment with IECs by assessing the incidence of cancer in a large patient population over a cumulative follow-up period of more than 1,000 years. Investigators retrospectively reviewed data from 340 patients treated across 27 investigator-initiated pediatric and adult clinical trials conducted at the Baylor College of Medicine. All patients were treated with multiple lines of therapy and exposed to chemotherapy prior to enrolling on the IEC protocol. At enrollment, they had relapsed and or refractory hematologic or solid malignancies. Study subjects were treated with one of five IEC classes genetically modified with gamma retroviral vectors. These included donor-derived gene-marked virus-specific T-cells, or VSTs, autologous gene-marked VSTs, donor T-cells transduced with an inducible caspase-9 suicide gene, 
dominant negative TGF receptor transduced VSTs, and CAR T cells with seven distinct target antigens. To determine whether treatment with IECs increases the risk of subsequent malignancies, the authors included a control group of patients who received IECs that had not been genetically modified prior to infusion. This group included 111 patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma, or B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, who were treated with Epstein-Barr virus-specific T-cells. All patients were evaluated for time-to-second malignancy, starting with the date of enrollment. Median follow-up was 14.9 months, with 56.5%, 21.2%, and 8.5% of patients having been followed for more than 1, 5, or 10 years, respectively. In the cumulative follow-up period lasting 1,027 years, 13 patients, or 3.8%, developed secondary cancers. A total of 16 malignant events were recorded during the study period, 4 hematologic malignancies, and 12 solid tumors. The rate of cumulative secondary cancers at 5 years in patients receiving retrovirus-modified IECs was 3.6%, which falls in the same range as published rates of secondary malignancies following chemotherapy namely 2% to 5%. Overall, this rate is considered low. 75% of subsequent tumors were solid tumors. The most common was basal cell carcinoma, which is not believed to be related to T-cell manipulations. Biopsies were available for 11 of 16 subsequent tumors, but PCR testing revealed that none expressed the transgene introduced into the T-cells. All 13 patients who developed a subsequent malignancy also had testing of peripheral blood mononuclear cells for replication-competent retroviruses, and none were detected either before or after the secondary malignancy was diagnosed. Taken together, these results suggest that the administration of IECs genetically modified with gamma retroviral vectors does not increase the risk of subsequent malignancies. In an accompanying commentary, Marcella Maus from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, notes that this is the first large study of long-term follow-up of patients treated with gamma-retroviral-modified T-cells, which found a negligible rate of genotoxicity. However, she also cautions that patients treated with other immune or hematopoietic cells besides mature T-cells were not examined in this study, and that no study subjects received treatments with cells that had been modified with gene-editing technologies such as Talens or CRISPR-Cas9. It remains possible that transgenes present in higher copy numbers or those that confer longer persistence of modified T-cells may still exert genotoxicity, regardless of whether the gene delivery system is based on a retrovirus, lentivirus, transposon, or nuclease. Nevertheless, Maus concludes that these latest findings by Stefan and collaborators are highly reassuring and warrant relaxing the uniquely intensive and prolonged monitoring of patients after treatment with mature T-cells modified with gamma retroviruses. Next up, we'll discuss an article in Blood entitled TP53 Copy Number and Protein Expression Inform Mutation Status Across Risk Categories in Acute Myeloid Leukemia by Manoush Tashakori from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and colleagues.
This work represents the first large-scale study designed specifically to understand the landscape and correlates of P53 dysregulation in primary AML samples. In recent years, P53 status has been established as an important determinant in treatment selection in a range of cancers, including hematologic malignancies. However, the implications of mutated TP53 are not clearly understood in AML. The European Leukemia Net and National Comprehensive Cancer Center Network consider mutated TP53 as an adverse risk AML category. While anecdotal evidence points to some subsets of AML patients with the TP53 mutation as having non-adverse risk features. Alterations involving the TP53 locus fall into two main categories. First, TP53 gene deletion, and second, TP53 mutations that compromise P53 function. Most TP53 mutations associated with cancer, including those in AML, are missense mutations that involve the DNA binding domain. Moreover, Nearly 60% of cancers with TP53 missense mutations harbor a deletion of the other TP53 allele, or loss of heterozygosity. Mutant P53 protein, largely by virtue of its resistance to degradation, accumulates in cells harboring TP53 mutations and can be detected by immunohistochemistry in bone biopsy sections. However, to date, only a few studies have focused on evaluating the role of P53 immunohistochemistry in AML. One showed that immunohistochemistry-detected accumulation of P53 correlates independently with overall survival in AML patients. A different study, which only included a small group of AML patients, had similar findings in therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Together, these findings suggested that immunohistochemistry-detected accumulation of P53 may add independent prognostic value and serve as a tool for detecting P53 dysregulation. In the current study, the authors aim to evaluate the clinical impact and predictive value of TP53 mutation status and P53 protein stabilization levels in a large cohort of patients with AML. The study included a total of 528 patients with AML, treated at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center between November of 2005 and August of 2020. The retrospective group consisted of 427 patients with mutant TP53, while the prospective group consisted of 101 patients, of whom 20 had TP53 mutant AML and 81 had wild-type TP53. The prospective group was used to validate the predictive potential of P53 immunohistochemistry. Patients were further divided into AML subgroups based on the World Health Organization classification and the type of treatment they received. The authors analyzed TP53 mutational status, copy number, and protein expression data in the studied group of patients and provided a compilation of mutation sites and types across disease subgroups among treated and untreated patients. Overall survival was calculated as the time from the date of AML diagnosis to the date of last follow-up or death by any cause, whichever occurred first. The authors found differential hotspots in subsets of patients with AML and uncovered novel pathogenic variants involving the TP53 splice sites. They identified TP53 copy number loss in 70.2% of TP53-mutated AML. 
more deleterious TP53 mutations and copy neutral loss of heterozygosity were found in 15.6% of AML patients who had intact TP53 copy number. The authors also applied P53 immunohistochemistry to a series of 211 AML patients and confirmed that the staining pattern correlated very strongly with the presence of TP53 mutations. Using a digital image analysis algorithm, they arrived at an optimal cutoff of 7.2% strongly P53 positive cells as most predictive of TP53 mutation. Importantly, the authors were able to demonstrate that mutant P53 protein expression patterns by immunohistochemistry provide a robust readout that integrates TP53 mutation and allelic states in patients with AML with a sensitivity of 94.49% and specificity of 90.48%. Furthermore, immunohistochemistry confirmed protein expression of P53 informed mutation status irrespective of the TP53 copy number status. Genomic analysis of additional mutations in TP53 mutant AML revealed co-mutations in genes involved in epigenetic regulation, including DNMT3A and TET2, RAS MAP kinase signaling, including NF1 and RAS, and RNA splicing, such as SRSF2. As expected, a complex karyotype was associated with shorter overall survival and was observed in most of the patients. In line with the findings previously observed in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, a multi-hit TP53 mutation due to copy number loss or multiple mutations was also associated with shorter survival. The authors concluded that these findings provide a strong foundation for refining risk stratification of AML patients based on integrated molecular and protein-level TP53 analyses. In an accompanying commentary, Robert Hasserjan, from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, notes that the study by Tashikori and colleagues confirms the utility of P53 immunohistochemistry in not only identifying TP53 mutated cases, but also in providing a proteomic readout of mutations that are likely to be pathogenic. He further notes that unlike TP53 mutation analysis by next-generation sequencing, which typically has a turnaround time of one to two weeks, immunohistochemistry can usually be performed in 24 hours and thus has the potential to identify these ultra-high-risk AML patients more rapidly. Hassergen concludes that these new findings advance us one step closer to developing better treatments for patients with TP53 mutated AML who are typically resistant to currently available therapies. Immunochemistry is likely to become the new tool for appropriately allocating patients to treatments and clinical trials based on their TP53 status and true disease biology. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled CD34 Positive CD19 negative, CD22 positive B-cell progenitors might underlie phenotypic escape in patients treated with CD19-directed therapies. By Clara Bueno, from the Josep Carreras Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, Spain, and colleagues. Although chimeric antigen receptor CD19-directed immunotherapies and bispecific antibody-based therapies 
have transformed the treatment of relapsed or refractory B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or BALL. Many patients eventually relapse. Relapse after CAR T-cell treatment may occur either with retention of CD19 expression or with loss of CD19 expression. Which of these two mechanisms contributes to the development of resistance depends on the intrinsic properties of leukemic cells and the tumor microenvironment. Normal B-cell development in humans is a multi-step process that begins with hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, or HSPCs, and is characterized by the acquisition of B-cell-associated cell surface antigens. Of those, the CD19 antigen is the definitive marker of B-cell commitment and is strongly expressed on BALL cells. Recent studies have identified the CD34-positive, CD19-positive, CD10-negative, pre-pro-B progenitors as the earliest B-cell-committed progenitors in human fetal B lymphoid development. However, the pan-specific B-cell surface protein, CD22, is considered a very early marker for B-cell commitment, and its expression precedes that of CD19. In fact, dual targeting of the CD19 and CD22 antigens is currently being explored as a potential strategy to overcome single-target-associated immune escape. Interestingly, a previous study on one BALL patient who relapsed after CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy showed that CD19-negative leukemic cells were already present before treatment, hinting that relapse may be a consequence of the selection of rare CD19-negative BALL clones. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that pre-existing CD22-positive, CD19-negative pre-leukemic cells may represent an early mechanism responsible for phenotypic escape to CD19-directed immunotherapies. Bueno and colleagues first sought to characterize the expression of CD22 across the B-cell developmental pathway by performing bulk and single-cell RNA sequencing and flow cytometry of healthy fetal, neonatal, and postnatal CD34-positive progenitors. The authors were able to demonstrate that CD22 precedes CD19 in normal B-cell development. They also identified CD34-positive, CD19-negative, CD22-positive cells in diagnostic and relapsed bone marrow samples of approximately 70% of BALL patients, and their frequency increased twofold in BALL patients who achieved complete remission after CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. Furthermore, the authors observed that the median of CD19-negative CD22-positive cells before treatment was threefold higher in BALL patients who relapsed after CD19-directed immunotherapy. Fluorescence in situ hybridization in flow-sorted populations, in combination with in vivo xenograft modeling, revealed that the CD19-negative CD22-positive cells harbor the genetic abnormalities present at diagnosis and initiate leukemogenesis in vivo leading to the development of the primary diagnostic BALL. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that pre-leukemic CD34-positive, CD19-negative, CD22-positive immature progenitors might underlie phenotypic escape in patients treated with CD19-directed immunotherapies. In an accompanying commentary, Nirali Shah, from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and Terry Fry, 
from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and Children's Hospital of Colorado, notes that the study by Bueno and collaborators identifies pre-existing CD19-negative, CD22-positive leukemic progenitor cells as subclones underlying immune escape after CD19-directed immunotherapies. These findings may have potential implications on how multi-antigen targeting is approached in the future. They note that highly active CD22 targeting therapies are available or in active development. Shaw and Fry believe that strategies aimed at combinatorial targeting and optimizing sequential approaches are urgently needed to improve both depth and duration of remission in BALL. In addition, there is a critical need to identify pre-existing antigen-negative populations as single antigen-targeted therapies become mainstream and as tools to detect such populations become more broadly available. The potential concurrent downregulation of CD22 accompanying CD19 loss and the appearance of CD22 earlier in the development of hematopoietic progenitor cells suggest that targeting CD22 prior to targeting CD19 may be a reasonable approach in BALL. In summary, the work by Bueno and collaborators adds an additional consideration in identifying potential reservoirs of antigen-negative populations which can emerge following CD19-directed immunotherapy, further emphasizing the importance of sequential or concurrent CD22 targeting in BALL. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.